future. And uh, some months ago, he asked Corey and Hunter and me um, what we'd like to preach on, because we're going to be preaching on the parables. And he gave us a list of the parables. And my choice was an easy choice, because I love this parable that we're going to talk about this morning. It's particularly meaningful to me uh, this morning. Uh, It's easy to talk about what you love. In Matthew's gospel, we find two little parables that are tied together, and we're going to look at them pretty carefully in a minute, but I think it's important we review uh, just a minute. Remember, a parable is a story that's taken from real life that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. It's a simple story that Jesus used to teach some simple principle. We don't want to overanalyze it. We don't want to think of it as like a fable where we have talking animals, we have fantasy. No, these are common everyday events that Jesus uses to teach certain concepts. And so he uses characters in a symbolic way to teach a kingdom principle. And that's what he's going to do this morning through these two parables. It's very important that we understand our parable in context of where it falls in the teaching. Remember back to the parable of the soils. We talked about that the very first Sunday we talked about parables. And Jesus told the parable of the soils and the disciples said, why are you talking in parables? And he used that Isaiah passage and he said, I'm talking in parables as a way of judgment because there's some people who are going to understand and there's some people who are not going to understand. And if you're going to understand, you're going to be a kingdom person and you're going to be asking questions about that parable so that you get to the meaning because Jesus was interested in people who cared who cared about what he had to say, and who would take the time to look into what he had to say. And so Jesus goes on to explain what the parable of the soils meant. And he later tells them some more parables, and it's all happening in this same passage that we're talking about today. He's teaching them some more parables, and he tells them the parable of the weeds, and he uses these two parables to talk about the parable of the weeds, to talk about the spiritual truths, to talk about the meaning of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. These twin parables we're studying this morning understand are talking to, or is when Jesus is talking to his disciples. When he's talking to his disciples, not the crowds, He's talking to the disciples, these inner people, these people that already understand Jesus to be the king. They understand him to be the Messiah. These are coming to people just like you and me. We recognize Jesus as our Savior. We recognize him as our Lord and our King. We accept him as Messiah. We're following him. These parables are told to that kind of person, people like you and people like me. So it's, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, it's aimed directly at you. The big idea of the parable is very, very simple. Jesus wants his followers to see that following Christ or that the kingdom of God is the most valuable thing in your life. The most valuable thing in your life. Nothing more valuable. Look at Matthew 13, 44. Let's read together. Simple little text this morning. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like the merchant in search of fine pearls, who, in finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear this morning that you want us to treasure you above all else. This kingdom of God is an important treasure to our life. I hope and I pray this morning that by your spirit, you will open our eyes, open our hearts to receive that which you have for us today. We leave here today different people because we've been under the authority of your word. Now speak to us, we ask in your name. Amen. I love a mystery. I love mystery shows. Love them. I love when uh, there's been some crime and the authorities are hunting and digging and sifting through the crime scene. And out of the chaos of that crime scene, they find little clues and little fibers and little things. And they, they put together these clues in such a way as to come up with a theory, come up with a suspect. And one of the greatest parts of the whole crime uh, story is when they put a suspect in the interrogation room. I love that scene. I love it because they have a person at the table who is their suspect and they have a guy across from them that's asking them all kinds of questions he's, and he's interrogating and then behind some kind of glass enclosure there's a box where people are standing watching. You see up here uh, Sherlock and Joan Watson from the uh, um, elementary are in the box, and they're going to watch this interrogation. And they're in there for a very important reason, because if you're up close, you see some things. But when you're at a distance, oh, you have a different perspective. Distance always gives us perspective. And so I want us to treat these parables that way today. I want to get up close to them. I want to look really, really close. And then at the end, I want us to back up, and I want us to see it from a different perspective. And both perspectives work this morning. But let's, let's talk first about um, the two discoverers. There's two different kinds of people here. Jesus uses, uses the idea of these broad extremes. First, there's a guy that is in the field. He's a peasant farmer. And he's plowing along, and he's just walking along, and he doesn't care, and he's doing, and he trips over. He trips over the treasure in the field. This guy is like the person who is walking away from God, has no uh, want to about following God, has no inclination of the things of God, is not interested. He's just out doing his own thing. He's out partying and playing and doing whatever he wants to, following the will of the flesh. And he stumbles upon the treasure. Somebody showed him the gospel. And through the miracle of the Holy Spirit, he leaves that stuff behind. He finds what he's been looking for. He didn't realize he'd been looking for but he's found the treasures. He's found the gospel. The other person is like the person who's highly religious. He has searched. He has searched. He has searched. He's looked and looked and looked for God. Through mysticism, through religion, through whatever it is, he's haunted, he's haunted, he's haunted for God. He's never found the answer. 
But somewhere he stumbles upon the gospel. He finally finds it. He finds that gospel. It's the pearl of great worth. Eureka, he has found it. And through the miracle again of the Holy Spirit filling his life, he receives the gospel. He understands it's the treasure. He understands it's the thing that he's been looking for. It's it's the one. It's the answer. Jesus is making a point from the two people that however you came to believe the gospel, you need to understand its value and make the very most of it. When we understand the value of the kingdom of God, we're going to understand some principles. The first thing we're going to understand is Jesus is the only treasure worth pursuing wholeheartedly. The one and only treasure worth pursuing wholeheartedly. Notice both the hidden treasure and the pearl of great worth became the single pursuit of the followers. It became the single pursuit of the finder. Once that thing of tremendous value was found, nothing else was even close to as being as important. Jesus is making the claim through these parables, he's the treasure. He's the pearl of great value. When you find him and you understand who he is, you drop everything else and you follow him. That's the claim he's making. The disciples did this. Levi, the tax collector, he left his tax collecting booth, just dropped it, dropped his business, and went and followed Jesus. Peter and Andrew left their fishing business. They followed Jesus, left their nets on the shore. James and John, they left their father, and they left their fishing behind. They followed Christ. Jesus can ask us to drop everything and follow him because he's worth pursuing. He's the pearl of great price. He's the hidden treasure. He's the one worth pursuing wholeheartedly. Number two, we're going to understand that if we treasure Jesus in this way, it involves some joyful and willing sacrifice. Look back at the text for a minute. The man finds the treasure hidden in the field and with joy, with joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. He does it with joy. He's willing to give up anything to have that field. The merchant, he looks and he looks and he looks for the right pearl. And Eureka, he finds it. He finds it. And then he goes and sells all the old worthless pearls he's had. And he he gets the one. The one. He gets the one. Jesus wants us to value him in that way. Now understand here, Jesus is not telling us we have to buy him or we have to buy our salvation. Remember, he's talking to disciples. He's not talking to the crowds. He's talking to us, those who have already accepted him as Messiah. He's making the point he's worth any sacrifice, any sacrifice at all. Serving Christ, expanding the kingdom, sharing the gospel, sometimes it requires cost. It requires sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. It's worth anything. You've seen this quote by Jim Elliott. He's the missionary that uh, went to native tribes in South America. We've seen it a bunch of times. Look at it. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott understood the words of Jesus. He understood this principle. He understood that Jesus was the one worth pursuing. He's the one worth pursuing, even if it's costly. Do you see in this quote a deciding ahead of time? Do you see a choice beforehand? 
Jim was going to South America. He knew it was dangerous. He knew it was risky. But he predetermined it was worth anything to follow Jesus. He predetermined it was his choice. And he did it joyfully. He remembered the words of Jesus. What does it profit a whole man if, or a man if he gained the whole world and he loses his soul? It profits nothing. And Jim understood that. Men throughout the ages have understood. He's, they've understood that he's worth anything. But I want you to see something else. Do you understand that what Jesus calls us to sacrifice is no sacrifice at all? No sacrifice at all. What he calls us to give up, he much more than makes up the difference. Because we get him. We get him. He's asking us to give up things that don't really matter in order to have what really does. Think what the world offers. Think what it causes important. The first would have to be money and prestige. You need money. You need prestige. He wants you to have houses, cars, wealth, youth, looks, career, fame, sex. You know all the trappings. You know all the things that the world says is important. Your Facebook status. But Jesus is telling us and he's reminding us. He's begging us to remember that these things are nothing in comparison to him. Nothing. They're of no value. Why are we so slow to learn this? We say we love Jesus, but we pursue this junk, this trash, virtually every day of our lives unless God intervenes. And oh, how he can intervene. Let me tell you about a young couple I once knew. They were married a couple years and ready to start a family. And they waited and they waited. There's no child. They finally consulted doctors who gave them the grim news that, well, unless there's some expensive and dramatic procedures to be performed babies out of reach these procedures were out of reach monetarily for these people so they continued to wait and hope she finished her education and she started a career but there was still no child and one day there was a routine doctor visit and this couple mentioned it to the doctor and uh, this lady said you know what you really ought to go see this guy I know. He's kind of a nerdy guy. He likes the science of all this stuff and the blood testing and the checking of all this sort of stuff. You really ought to see him. He might really just be the one to help. So they went. He gave them about the same grim news as all the rest of them. And they were getting ready to leave. And on a whim, he said, you know what? I see your disappointment. I see your hopelessness. And I don't want you to leave that way. One of the very first things we do is we start people with these meds. And he wrote out a prescription. This is the lowest dose of this med. And it won't work. But I want you to know that at least you've started the process. At least you know that you're at a beginning point. You can work on up. And there's a lot of things that we're going to do. But at least you've started. But you know what? They worked. They worked the very first time. There was pregnancy. It was amazing. The first lowest dose. And the months begin to pass. And they do what every expectant couple does. They get a nursery ready. They make a place 
for their new one. They get a crib. They get a car seat. They do all the things. Paint, wallpaper, make it cool. But one day, which happened to be the day of their wedding anniversary, she calls her husband at work. and She says, you know what? Something's wrong. I've got a doctor's appointment. Meet me. So he met her, and the nurse checked the baby's heart. Strong, good heartbeat. Oh, thank goodness. Baby's okay. Then the doctor comes in, and he checks, and he immediately sends them to the hospital. You're having this baby today, and it's way too soon, and there's nothing I can do. Sure enough, a few hours later, on their seventh wedding anniversary, in the nightmare of a silent labor room, death was delivered to them in the form of their stillborn son. A few days later, they stood not over a cradle, but over a grave, and their lives ground to a screeching halt. You can probably tell that couple was Cheryl and me. And I share that score of our lives today to tell you not that you have pity for us. Oh, poor Ron, poor Cheryl. Oh, no, 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 no. A thousand times, no. But I tell you that story to gain some credibility, to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I want you to listen. I want you to listen carefully today. Because this is not some egghead theory that I got from a book. This is walking through the trail of tears as we stood over the grave of our child. As a young father standing over the grave of a child, I can tell you in no uncertain terms, there was not a job, there was not a career, There was not a house or a car or a fit-toned body or a winning lottery ticket that was of any value at all. None. No value at all. You see, when life kicks you to the curb, when you've absolutely been decimated by life, when there is no hope, when all you have is you and Jesus. You have everything you need. When there is nothing left but just you and Jesus, I promise you, He's all you need. Super abundantly, all you need. I didn't say it made it easy. I didn't make, we didn't sail through it. It wasn't fun. But we found that Jesus was the only thing that mattered. And it changed our lives. It can change your life today. The psalmist got this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no want for another thing. He's enough. He's enough. He's enough. I need nothing else. Oh, the Apostle Paul, he knew this one. He knew this one well. Look at this passage from Philippians 3. This great, rich group of verses. Something to memorize and 
kind of chomp on, gnaw on, memorize this one. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The very righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him. That I may know him. Paul was willing to get rid of everything in his life. For the surpassing value, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To know him. To know him. Knowing Jesus was worth Paul stripping off everything that stood in the way of this priceless treasure. Jesus Christ. This man. This savior. That he had found. How did he do that? How did he do that? What was it about Paul? What, what kinds of things did he do to accomplish that in his life? I think we get just a glimpse of it in 1 Timothy 4.8. Write that down somewhere. 1 Timothy 4.8. Just jot that down. I didn't put it in your notes. 1 Timothy 4.8. And Paul is telling Timothy, his young apprentice, he says to him something like this. You know what, Timothy? Physical training is of some value. Some. But training in godliness? Ooh, that's where it's at. That's where it's at. So, like an athlete and all that sort of stuff, you you train. You train to become like God. You train in godliness. But understand that physical training is of some value, but this training in godliness, this is what it's about. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, whatever you have, hold loosely. You can go to the gym. You can work out. Do that. But understand that that's not the the thing. That's just a part. You can have a job. You can have a career. You can have children. You can have all of the things of this world, but have them and hold them loosely. Hold them loosely. Hold them with an open hand. And pursue diligently, wholeheartedly Christ. See, when the rubber meets the road, it isn't going to matter if you can bench 325 pounds. It matters how much of the word is in you. It doesn't matter if you have 325,000 in the bank. It's how much of God is in you. Pursue him. Pursue him as the greatest treasure. If you have 325,000 in the bank, great. Tithe off of it. We need it. But make Christ your treasure. Hold everything loosely. Hold everything loosely. See, folks, that's the message of our parable today. It's a wake-up call for us to strip off everything that gets in the way, to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets us and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It's the most literal meaning of the parable. But that's not all. Because remember, I told you I like a mystery. I want us to 
step back for a minute. I want us to go behind the interrogation room. And let's look at it from a little bit different perspective. And it won't take but a second. It works. It's really cool. Instead of us as the recipient of the gospel being the merchant or being the guy or the farmer in the field, let Jesus be it. Let Jesus be the tenant farmer. Let Jesus be the merchant hunting the pearl of great price. Because he modeled modeled exactly what he described for us. And he did it, of course, perfectly. Jesus understood the value of the kingdom. And he understood some things. One, he understood that his father's agenda and the kingdom were the only treasure worth pursuing. Jesus always, always modeled a single-minded pursuit of his father's will. Consider his actions. He left the glory of heaven to become a man, Emmanuel, God with us. He taught, he healed, he dealt with sinners while remaining sinless himself. And he did that in order to bring the gospel to the world. Remember when his time was approaching, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was in a determined pursuit of the cross. Jesus kept after it. He never quit. He kept his eye continually upon the goal. Jesus understood the kingdom was the only treasure worth pursuing. Second. He understood that treasuring the kingdom would involve him in joyful, willing sacrifice. Are you getting this? Jesus does not ask us to do what he was not willing to do himself. What an awesome God we have. What an awesome Savior we have who models for us what he wants us to do. Jesus said things like this. My food is to do the will of the Father. In other words, doing the Father's will was the satisfaction of his soul. Physical food was of some value to him, but following the Father, that was the real food. Remember the words of Jesus as the mourners are surrounding him as he's being led to the cross? Do you remember what he said? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Don't weep for me. I'm doing this of my own accord. I'm doing this for the pleasure of the Father. And he was willing to do the Father's will even to the point of death. And he did so without regret. He did so ever in willing cooperation with the Father. Always. The final point of Jesus treasuring the kingdom, though, is profound. Think about Hebrews 12, too, where the author says... Consider Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him for a minute. Consider Jesus, this one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the same. And he sat down at the Father's right hand. Who for the joy set before him. What joy is he talking about? In a very real way, that joy that was set before him was the Father's blessing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Oh, what a blessing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus in his obedience to the father went for the blessing. It was his joy before him. But you know what? That's not all. 
See, because places like Revelation 5 and Daniel 2 that we heard this morning talk about the Lamb of God who purchased a people from every tribe and from every nation. See, you and I as disciples of Jesus, we're those people. Remember Luke 19.10? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's you and me. That's us. He purchased us. We're his joy. We, you, me, we're the joy set before him. We're the joy set before him. That's an awesome thought. For the Father's blessing and for his people, Jesus treasured the kingdom above all else. For the Father's blessing and for you and for me, he treasured the kingdom above all else. There was a day this earthly father stood over the grave of his son. There was a day when the heavenly father stood over the grave of his son. But the heavenly father did not stand over the grave of his son in bitterness and hopelessness and despair. No, not at all. See, this tomb was far more like a cradle than a grave. It was a birthplace for the kingdom. For you see, in his mighty power, he would raise his son in whom he delights in perfect completion of his brilliant and redemptive plan. And in doing so, he purchased the people of God on whom to shower his mercy and his grace. What a love from the Father. What a joy to be treasured by Jesus. What a joy to treasure Jesus in return. What kind of people should that lead us to be? Let's pray. Father, as we sung just earlier, Jesus is better. He's better. Better than anything this world has to offer greater than any treasure that we see around us today. And I pray you impress upon our hearts your value. And I pray, Father, that we become different people. People who treasure Christ. People that live for him in a wholehearted fashion because we see how you came, you died, you pursued us in wholehearted fashion. And Father, we want today to worship you. We want today to live for you. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and stand. The team will lead us in a time of